Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with John Markson. You may know John from his bands, Such Golden Taking Meds. He also produces records for great bands like Original Sharks, Drug Church, and tons and tons of others. We get into a whole discussion about his career and his thoughts on record production, and in general, I'll have a good time because we're good friends and we chat, and so today you get to listen to us do that. Before we play this podcast, I do want to tell you about Jay-Z Microphones. In particular, their Black Hole series, the BH2 and the BH1S, which are the result of relentless improvement of technology spanning more than 30 years. The mic wows you with clarity and richness. They incorporate a gold drop capsule technology using this innovation. The capsule's diaphragm is lighter, therefore it moves much faster and delivers more clarity, precision, as well as reducing colorations and distortions. These handcrafted studio microphones are designed for producers and are already used by world-class producers like Rafa Sardina, Tom Russo, Mark Urselli, Sylvia Massey, Rob Chiarelli, and many others. Right now, they're offering a deal that's 50% off for Black Hole Series microphones. Visit jzmike.com blackhole. Uh, I also want to say, they mailed me one of these, and I've been totally blown away by the clarity of it, and I don't have to say that. I'm going to keep using it, and I'm going to keep reporting back to you over these next few episodes about what I think about it, but so far... This mic has a stunning clarity, and out of the 30 mics in my mic collection, I'm pretty blown away by what I'm hearing. So, without further ado, I want to remind you my new book, Processing Creativity, is out on audiobook and any other format. So, if you like this conversation, I suggest you pick that up, because you'll like that too. And here's a quick commercial for my other podcast, and then we're going to get the fun started. Hello, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great albums. In the past, I've been lucky enough to make great records with bands like The Cure, Animal Collective, The Misfits, and over a thousand others. I've written two books and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I am proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast. Atlantic has granted the unprecedented access to the artists, producers, managers, and A&R to discuss what goes into really making the great records they release. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richman and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. But first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. So how do you introduce yourself to normies who don't know what you do? 
I think normies mostly know what a recording engineer is. Do they? You know what I mean? I think for the most part. So I'll say maybe like, I mean, oh, Maybe I'm meeting different normies. Right. Maybe. Maybe the normies I'm meeting aren't as norm. But the, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll say I play bass and tour in rock bands and I record bands. If my general run-of-the-mill normie is an Uber driver, like <laughs> that's just picking me up. What do you do? What are you doing for work? Oh, I, I record bands. I kind of like put my hands like I'm doing a fader or a DJ yeah, thing. Yeah, and yeah. they'll know what I'm talking about, you know? <laughs> nice. We're all kind of air guitar for a second. They'll be like, oh, you're a rock star, man. You're going to teach me how to play guitar? And I've actually <laughs> given my number to a couple Uber drivers. Like they've been like, oh, I would love to learn how to play guitar. And I'll be like, hey, maybe I'll pick up some side, like way too expensive work as a freelance guitar-based teacher, but it's never, it's never you gone through. You had the through. thing, though, of, like, someone be like, oh, I make beats, because I've had that one twice. What, from Uber drivers? <laughs> and, like, of course, like, the last one I got it, I was, like, coming back from, like, a girl I was dating, like, two years ago's place, and it was, like, literally the farthest I've ever gone on a date. I'm Ubering home, and, it's, of course, this is the longest Uber I've ever done in New York City. <laughs> and this guy's like, yo, and I got this other one on my SoundCloud, and I'm like... What the fuck did I just do to myself? Really cranking it up, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, sub at plus 10 on the stereo in the car. It really was just like that. Like, it was like, I have to listen to music for a living. Like, can you turn it down? Well, you could bit? at least have tried to turn that into like a quick mastering game. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I wasn't thinking uh, entrepreneurial. Right, enough. right. You <laughs> got you got to rest your entrepreneurial brain sometimes. Everyone knows that Jesse Cannon is the <laughs> king king entrepreneur of all of the five borough. The Gary Vaynerchuk of Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who that is. but You're very lucky. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sucks. Okay, true. Um, so tell me about your background in music and how you got to where you are today. I've always been the dude that's most interested. I've always been interested in guitar music. My older cousins at a young age were all playing in local punk bands in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I think today I don't think it's the coolest thing ever, but I'm still doing it. Yeah, I got into it probably around... 10 or 11, trying to play guitar really poorly. And then maybe around 12, I realized that I had these ideas. I had no interest in taking lessons. I had no interest in writing music notationally. I got an eight track, started recording stuff. The other side of me was always like kind of a video game nerd growing up. So it kind of fulfilled part of that tinkering with electronics vibe, you know? And then I ended up being the guy in my crew of people that were trying to make music who was always trying to only hang out and do that and record little ideas and whatnot, you know? And so going through high school, I was playing in a lot of bands, a lot of following the same thing I do today, playing in techie guitar music bands, what have you, recording myself. I worked with a couple dudes that were much older than me at the time, one of whom, his name was Eric Eisenberg, who's sadly not around anymore. He ran a recording studio, totally fully-fledged recording studio. I was the 17-year-old playing in bands with the late 20s, early 30-year-old guys. All the music they were writing was so interesting and right up what I always found to be cool about guitar music. Lots of cool stuff happening, uh, cool chord movements, but also a certain kind of local music grit to it. I think from there, I just sort of decided that I wanted to be around that forever, you know? I have a pretty musical family. My mother is like, she's not a composer by any means, but she's one of those kinds of people that can sit down at a piano and just rip whatever she sees in front of her. Wow. And some other musical family, like her first cousin was the uh, cello player on that Nirvana Unplugged album. And so I grew up Laura? with like... No, Lori. Lori okay, Goldston. Because uh, more, uh, I guess, maybe she played on in utero. She was the touring. No, that's my cousin, Lori Goldston. Okay. Maybe there was another one, yeah, too. Yeah, I think it was somebody who yeah. was the touring. Because I've worked with Moore, uh, who uh, was the touring on the in utero. Gotcha, yeah. On that, yeah. 
Yeah, so I grew up with at least some notion of that it was possible to work in cool music, you know? She went on actually to play in that band Earth, which actually some contemporaries nowadays think is cooler than the fact that she was on that Nirvana album. <laughs> that's that's always been like an easy little calling card. That's you know? really funny. So tell me more about the shift to doing more record production. In college... I was still recording a lot of music, but it really came from that necessity to record my own music. When I was a sophomore, I started doing some internships at studios because I started studying economics in college. Quickly decided that was a terrible idea. Unless you like money. I mean, it's a good idea. It's a good. <laughs> it's, it's a, good a much idea better like idea. Money. It was a terrible idea for me. Yes. Uh, I was not really feeling that. And at that time, I'd already been spending all my time on music. I started to study music, started interning at studios. I ended up really liking that feel of being an insider into the process. I'd always felt that as an artist and like loved that creative process, but never really considered myself, considered the option of like, that's something that you could be doing forever. Uh, I really love working with people. I was totally not an amazing studio intern. I think the first day of an internship, I ended up like smoking weed with a client and the boss and my boss, who's a good friend of mine now, James Zayner, who's an amazing engineer in Boston, pretty much like embarrassed and schooled me after the client left. He's like, are you really getting high on your first day at work? Like, what are you doing? I had a lot of respect for the fact that he didn't fire me on the spot. Ended up teaching me a lot that summer. And uh, pretty <laughs> yeah, much I, since- I, I'd have been pissed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, luckily I was, I think my saving grade was I realized what the problem was. I realized that obviously, and that's a tough thing to realize as, as a dumb 19-year-old. You know what I mean? You don't you don't know anything. And at the time, I had so interconnected playing and making music and recording music with smoking pot or like feeling very free among people. And I think in that moment, also seeing how he was able to manage this session and seeing it happen from start to finish, I sort of became slightly enamored in that process of like managing talent and creativity and keeping people's vibes going and like sort of what is required to have a successful session happen. And then and from then really on, important. and then from that's then really forward. important. And I think sometimes it's like the thing too, is that you need to have the humbling moment to like get in that space. Totally. And I think from that point forward, I sort of stopped seeing recording as just an exercise between my own music and a listener. So rather than just making recordings based on the ideas that I was having as an artist, becoming really interested in how I can help shape other people's ideas, join other people's bands for two seconds at a time, just as an, a reflex to find myself in the studio more. I couldn't just be my own projects. You know, I was probably for a while playing in way too many bands, and maybe that was also probably an impulse that was coming to want to be recording all the time. And then I realized that I could just do that for other people, you know. It makes life a lot easier. Right, right. Nice. So tell me a little bit about your studio. So I ran a recording studio in Bushwick called the Gallery Recording Studio that was started in 2000 and I want to say seven by two dudes, Brian Forbes and Keith Parker. I interned there in 2010 or 11. I graduated from college then and moved into the studio, which was also an apartment at the time. I started working there all the time and then was pretty quickly fell into full-time record making. I had already been kind of positioning myself to hopefully have the opportunity to be making records full-time. That's not to say that any of the records I was making in 2011 and 12 were any good. I was lucky in the fact that I started operating a space that allowed me to be extremely creative and work with artists in New York City relatively cheaply to them. I ran that and did a lot of awesome records from there until 2017 when we got closed by the Department of Buildings. 
which is a long story in and of itself. And I've been in Greenpoint for the last year, but I'm moving into a new studio in like a week and a half. That's called Savaria Studios, which is a new space. Tell me this. Tell me more about this. So there's this dude, Tomas, this ex, I mean, he's still Austrian, this Austrian ex. um, (laughs) I'm sure a lot of Austrians uh, wish they could. I bet you a lot of Austrians would like to not be Austrians anymore. I'm an ex-Austrian. He's an ex-Austrian. He's this Austrian ex-acrobat metal drummer guy who has been running you may have even come in contact with him at some yeah, point in time I, I, this sounds really familiar he has, he's been running practice spaces all around the city for a long time one of them got really flooded by Sandy and then he moved into the Savaria uh, the Savaria the Pfizer building on Flushing, Flushing and Marcy this and is so funny I was there the other night right so like there's a ton of practice spaces there but he runs a really cool recording studio there and it's sort of been his passion space for a while I've been doing a lot of work out of a ton of studios for the last year that aren't my own mostly because at the gallery I had a live room at my space now I don't have a proper live room so I like I cut the newest drug church record at Seaside Lounge did some stuff at Virtue and Vice some other spaces you know occasionally traveling like cutting a record in Winnipeg at um, private ear recording so like a lot of times if I'm working with a band that needs to be somewhere for two three weeks at a time I can't just have them all behind me in one small control room there needs to be <laughs> there needs to be more space so I've always been looking for a new space and I'm, I'm super grateful for Tomas for kind of incorporating me into this new space. That's great. I'm stoked. The, the background for the listeners, uh, our lounge isn't built yet, and uh, not having to have the band all sitting in here. Uh... At least there's the rife opportunity for a beautiful lounge back yes. there. Yes, the key is, is we have to make the opportunity into reality because uh, this weekend sessions with everybody being in here made me want to die. Oh, really? <laughs> How many people were in here? Like six. That's a lot of people over this room. I think it would get kind of hot in here too with six it was, bodies. It wasn't hot. It was just annoying. Oh, true. Just annoying. <laughs> just, just annoying. That can, that can make you feel a little bit warmer. The, just the amount of times I had to say to people, if you guys want to talk while we're recording, text each other. True, true, true. That's that's honestly a huge thing. It's like, yo, you guys got to shut up, so either get in another room. But if you're in a one-room studio, you can't really say get in another room. You can't say to get in another room where there's no couches. Right, couches. right. So, fun times. I've heard stories about uh, your friend Steve Evans being really not about people having conversations in the control room. Oh, yeah, he'll kill you. <laughs> I've never worked with Steve, but when I heard about that, I was like, man, I got to stop. I got to start telling people to shut up. You know? Yeah, no, no, no. He's literally like, uh, he works with just the person that's recording. Tells everybody to get out. You can hear it when it's done. Whereas I have the thing on the other side of this wall. There's speakers, and those speakers play what's happening in here. That's actually pretty bright. So if you, God, I can't tell you. Like, I think the last four records I've done that have been long-term record, four out of five, the singer didn't write the lyrics. So there's constant, dude, that's not the words. Right. Even though they're reading off the thing. Right, it's right, like, right, it's right. It's not the words, and it's like... Thank God we have that because then the guitarist comes in all angry. Like, it's not ocean, it's daylight. And you're like, I like what? I like usually when there are people that are around that are able to check on some vibes, but just as long as they are reverent of the process and that if they don't hear exactly what they want to hear on the first take out of whoever is in the middle of recording, that they're not ready to jump in and do it. Like, that's, that's my job to manage their performance and, like, how they're warming up to it and whatnot, and it can be a lot of weird crossed wires if people are all talking. But that's I don't mind sort of. if people are like, hey, that was awesome, because when, yes. when there's a couple people in the room that are giving off that energy, like, you can feel it. You that's, know what I mean? Even if the they best. say nothing, even if they say nothing, you can feel it. That's the best. The worst is is like somebody not understanding that like most singers don't get it right on the by the third take a lot of the time. Right. And that we're trying to get them used to even just singing the thing with nuance. Right, 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 right. And sometimes that's really a one-on-one person thing. And I've heard from a lot of people that you've worked with that that's one of your strongest suits. I've never worked with you as a producer or an engineer or whatever, but I've heard from 
more than one band that I've worked with that has worked with you that they loved working with you on vocals. So much so that I even know some things that you say in the studio. That <laughs> if, something's, if something's rude. Very rude and very polite. Are right, right, exactly. And, uh, but the only part of the process I still enjoy is vocals and mixing. So. The only part the only part of the process. You know what it is? It's like drums. Now that everybody's like getting better at playing, you'd think it'd make it like easier. But now I'm like, you know, there's just like this thing of like, I feel like almost bored when like, I'm like, cool, all that was very good. And we just like need to touch up a filler too. Like working with good drummers, it's like, all right, this is boring now. And yeah, now it's just yeah, like yeah. doing maintenance, doing tuning and things right. like that. Like, it's like, it's not creative when people are good. I say, I'm still at that delusional point where I like working on every part of it. I mean, there's definitely moments in every part of it where I'm excited to go on to the next section, but. Yes. <laughs> That's you're, you're, you're also at a point in your career where you don't have to do everything. Or you've also I, positioned I your career so you yeah. don't have to do everybody. I mean, I process. haven't done bass and guitars on – I mean, I've done some records where I do bass and guitars, but I haven't done bass and guitars 13 years. So You got someone else doing that for you. That's the way. So let's get back to you, though. Okay, okay, okay. What instruments do you play? I think most people know me as a bass player nowadays. I play bass in a band called Such Gold and a band called Taking Meds. But I – I'm also a guitar player. I think I started on guitar and definitely felt stronger as a guitar player for a long time. I was playing bass at the same time just so I could record bass lines on the stupid demos I was making or on the not stupid demos, like the records I was making as a teenager, if we'll call it that. I think in the last seven years or so, I've been I've been touring as a bass player for X amount of months out of the year. I definitely feel spiritually like a bass player. You know, I could wax poetically a little bit longer about the bass than I could about guitar nowadays, you know? Mm. People probably know me most as a bass player, but I'm a bassist and a guitarist. I can fuck around with a lot of other stuff. I mean, I'm a little bit of a singer as well. Like, I'm usually the B guy say, in my band. I was going to say, yeah, you do background Yeah, bass. I'm the B guy in my bands, and occasionally we'll, we'll sing lead on some stuff, but... um. So, like, on this podcast, I like to say there's, like, this scale. There's the Steve Albini who's, like may tell you if a take's good or not. And then there's a John Feldman who will fully rewrite your songs from head to toe. Right. Where do you see yourself on that scale? Is this a one to 10? One is Albini, I mean, 10 is Feldman. You know, it's, a, it's a however you ease, most easily answer it type of thing. Um, I mean, it totally depends on the kind of band, for one. If we're talking about guitar music stuff, for the guitar music listeners out there, I'm probably, if Albini's a one and Feldman's a 10, I think I operate best at the seven and a half range. So I may not change anything. I may not change anything, but I think that getting psyched and diving deep into like the nuances of what people are doing is critical to my process. And a lot of that comes from performance stuff. So I may, again, I may not change anything, but I'll be the guy that's definitely like jumping up and down while you're recording. Say like, hey, like, remember, we're going to push this part a little bit faster or like you need to hit that a little harder. I'll definitely get myself involved in the in the performance of stuff rather than stay completely behind it. I think the people that that gave me the most influence were Bill Stevenson and Jason Livermore, who are like kind of two different guys. Like Bill as a vocal coach producer guy is so constantly tuned in to every single thing that you're doing vocally. Uh, and it was really an incredible experience to record the previous Such Gold LP with him. Jason Livermore, who's kind of the chief engineer there, mixing mastering guy, he's like way more understated. Like he will definitely tell you if something's not good enough and he'll definitely tell you if something is awesome, but he's a little bit more reserved. So I think there's always 
there's room for kind of both of those attitudes, being the guy that is so engaged with every little bit of what the artist is doing and the other person that's letting you do it but prepared to rein you in or push you further. Totally. I'm less of a I'm less of strictly a recordist for sure, like an Albini type. Although I've never worked with Albini, so I don't I don't know if maybe part of his silence is something that actually pushes people even further to like do their best. You know. You know he has a, he explains it on a podcast, and it's always interesting because he's one of those guys that I'll disagree with him vehemently about something, but then when you hear his reasoning behind it, you're like. Wow, that's way more interesting than I thought it was. And his thing is, is like he has such fucked up taste and his own creative outlet. Like you don't want his taste involved in it. I love that. I love that <laughs> about him. And I, 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 some, I mean, I get involved in song, like performance wise and song, right? It's like I get involved. I do the thing. But I, I like try to like let the artist taste and getting to know the artist and for me because – at the end of the day, like, it's like, you know, I have this thing, like, you know, like two friends of like, oh, did you listen to that record I did? I'm like, dude, I, the only thing I've listened to is dance music for two weeks. No, <laughs> there's guitar in that. I don't listen to guitar re- <laughs> recreationally anymore. Even no. though I feel like a lot of people will know you as a guy that's associated in some ways with guitar music. You're interviewing yeah, guitar I mean, music people. If I'm listening recreationally, odds are I'm listening to something with keyboards probably. Right, right, right. And uh, most of the time that's the case. But the point being... I don't think it's always about your own taste. It's sometimes about just knowing what something can be and having vision. But I think there's a reason he doesn't do it that's smart, which is I mean, when you listen to his bands, it's like, yeah, this is not melodic music. This is very abrasive music. I personally music. love Shellac. I, I love a lot of stuff that he's done. B- Big Black, I love. Yeah. I think one of the elements, though, is no matter who you work with, be it Steve or whatever, you're going to get such a lens of what their tastes are. His records sound like him so through and through. You know, there's plenty of bands that he's worked with that then kind of adopted a little bit more of like that shellacky, super high harmonic guitar tony stuff. There's plenty of bands that the only thing that rubbed off is like kind of that kick drum sound or like a slappy room thing. That is a reflection of his taste through and through. And I think that also it kind of feeds into the bands that want to work with him as well as they love the stuff that he's done. So no matter what, even if the, he doesn't even like that band, there's going to share some similarity. You know? I think that's very accurate you know? for him. And it is funny because yeah, like I know for me, like the second I did a record, like uh, worked on a record where the drums were done at his place, like my snare and Tom's sounds changed forever. Yeah, that's so cool. That's like, so cool. Hitting solo on that stuff and being like, oh, that's how a snare drum should sound. That's that's possible. Okay, I got to work on my shit. Apropos of who you work with, there's something about that like begets like, and that's kind of a cool thing, you know? Jay Robbins, I love the sound of his records. It's I love his bands. I love his bands. And yeah. there's some something about the bands that want to go to him that he attracts either directly or indirectly just by virtue of the artist that he is that has developed his engineering style. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes for you. Same thing goes for Steve. Same thing goes for Bill and Jason. Same thing goes for anyone that's doing good work. Obviously, no one wants to be fully pigeonholed into something, but it's always great to hear kind of some thread of the kinds of bands that are so attracted to that person's sound and style. The the, the DNA of underground music, I think, uh, is what Vishkana called it, yeah. That who called it? Vishkana. He's like this really good podcaster. Gotcha. From Canada. He actually did the Steve Albini interview I'm referring to. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, I know the one he, you're talking about. Because I can really think about one Steve Albini interview with a Canadian, so now I'm Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. He also did a really good joint one with uh, him and Ian Mackay where he got them to talk about right. their friendship. That was like two hours long. That's so good. They talk about like when they finished Repeater or something yes, that they said yes. it was terrible yep, <laughs> and that they yep. had to do it again. Yep, yep. So funny. What do you think you bring to records most often? I bring a sense of texture and excitement to guitar work. 
as a guitar guy. I really like spending a lot of time to find a guitar tone that's kind of an identity for a record as well as something that will really articulate certain elements of the performance that give it some of that emotional weight. And I think I bring a feeling that when working with me, it's a safe place to challenge yourself as to what you're good and not so good at and how to really kind of like lean into the things that you're good at and strengthen the things you're not so good at to make the record as emotionally impactful as it can be. I don't think I'm like the best engineer in the world or the best producer in the world, but I think that I get so excited from working with people and working with bands and when there's that kind of connective tissue over like when they trust me to tell them when something sucks or where they can improve or when they believe me when I say this is fucking awesome that they'll follow that path a little further. That's rad. And I also use like way too many guitar amps per pass on the guitar thing. So like, How many amps are you using per pass on the guitar? Like on on the newest Drug Church record, I'll just like come back to that again because I think we were talking about that earlier, is the, I think per guitar tone thing, it's three amps plus the pedals tapped off into a sans amp. So like instead of doing multiple layers of different performance, which is obviously a thing in and of itself, I feel like I can get a good tone with one amp but oftentimes I don't feel like I can get the tone I want with one amp in guitar music, you know? Oh, I, 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 mean, I haven't done one amp in a decade. Right, you and you and Sam are the same way, I know, because yeah. like in listening to y'all's podcast, y'all are, have both expressed the same thing. There's something about the way different amps, especially when driven differently, completely rotate and fuck with the phase that when they combine, it's never perfect to me, and maybe it's just the way I'm doing it, that it's never perfect, and it ends up like turning parts of the mids inside out, so there's like this texture to them. I got that really from, the first time I saw that as the coolest thing ever was from Jason at the Blasting Room. So like before that, I was already doing that, but I was doing it a little more germane. Like there'll be like a Marshall and then like a Vox. The Vox was kind of clean. The Marshall was dirty. I thought I was getting a little more articulation and I like that. But when I saw Jason do it, he was doing one combo amp that sounded like only a fuzz pedal. One amp that was like kind of your run-of-the-mill plexi JMP tone. Another thing that was like another outsidery tone. Two mics on each of them. A room mic out. Parallel EQ. Phased up all funny. And like it ended up sounding amazing. You know, and like very unique to its texture. And and I I haven't really been able to do something without that process since. So are you leaving all those down or are you committing down to a single track? What are you doing with that? I'll switch it up because like the one thing that I personally like about having, I will never sum them before a converter. So like if I have seven microphones or something grabbing a guitar tone, if I'm working on a console, I'll monitor the whole guitar tone out of two channels. Like for instance, on the structure, thing. One of them being a, the amps channel and one of them being that sans amp channel, both EQ'd differently. And then occasionally I'll bounce just that channel down. So I'll just have two channels of guitar that I'm working with per pass. But more often than not, I'll keep them all open so I can change the balance per part. You know what I mean? So I can move quickly and be aware of what I have. So like if there's a section where I know I need it to be less less big or I want it to just be the clean guitar for a bar and a half, especially if I'm talking about, I work a lot with math rocky bands where there might be like a lot of very articulate, specific, quick movements on guitar. To be able to develop excitement by changing the guitar tone really quickly for small moments, I I think is a powerful maneuver aside from just being able to mangle it with EQ or whatever, which I also like doing. So oftentimes my sessions will have an almost unmanageable amount of guitar tracks. But then by the time I'm really mixing them, I'll, I'll have like six or seven. I'll bounce them gotcha. down by that time. Yeah. My big thing is, is like, I just did like one that like I didn't commit down a lot of things. And I was like, wow, I forgot what it's like to be this mad during a mix. Right, right. Totally. <laughs> like, Luckily, I have a super powerful computer and like at least I, I route it in a way that I'm not looking at everything all the time. So I'll, I'll do like a ton of automation on singular channels 
for the most part and then just sort of be like working on the bus after that like a tiny bit you know or like cool. one eq and and sometimes i'll just still have you know 45 tracks of guitar mics open and that might only be like four passes of guitar stuff <laughs> you know nice is there any advice you give to every band you record? Yeah. It's usually like to the drummer to hit the shells harder. It's usually the drummer to hit the shells harder, and it's usually to the guitar player to be aware of the tiny nuances of how they're playing the guitar. Because some people will never know that they're constantly bending above the fifth fret too much. Stuff like that, you know, or that they're kind of feathering with their right hand a little bit, you know, where you need to be like all passion with your right hand. Definitely passion with how you articulate notes on the left hand but like some people just because they're hammering with the right hand they're also holding down the frets really hard and bending everything out of tune and I don't own any ever tuned guitars yet so I can't get away without doing that you know that makes two of us yeah, yeah. I, I don't know I'm, I'm torn on that I want an ever tune like and I talk about it all the time to bands that I work with I'll be like man I really hope I get an ever tune by this <laughs> you guys are coming into the studio and they're like why'd you tell me that now I, now you're making me nervous yeah I mean it saves a lot of time and they sound great it saves a yeah. lot of time can't bend though we have one one that we have access to, and it's shocking how uh, much faster it makes the process. They are different to play. They don't feel as awesome to play because I think there is like a psychoacoustic loop of when you hear your guitar being played in like little idiosyncrasies that make performances and the fact that it glosses over the ability to even have some of those weird things kind of can make shit difficult. Honestly, the hardest thing I have is doing, once you lay the rhythms down with that, all the tuning intricacies get so much worse. Right. Like, totally. Totally. Like, here's a great example is like, our telly is definitely not in perfect intonation and like, on a record it's pretty indiscriminate if it's like a rock and roll thing, but when we lay that down, it's like, it's almost unusable. Right, right. And uh, that's not fun. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go in and out. Like, sometimes, most of the time, I'll start a record, guitar tone stuff. I'll spend, you know, five hours, six hours getting, like, the tone that I really love. And I'll start tracking guitar. And maybe during this process of getting tone, I'll be tracking guitar a little bit, too. I'll sort of let performances live a little bit longer and, like, a little bit more open. And then I always find myself kind of going back to being, like, we really need to hammer down on intricacies about this and, like, your tuning and whatever yeah. you know some bands are able to get get along with with a little bit longer of an open thing like my my one band taking meds we're in the middle of an LP right now we listen to a ton of like Polvo and Shudder to Think and oh, yeah. some of that stuff the the guitars are like barely hanging on by a thread. I would go as far as saying some of that Polvo stuff, it's not really hanging on. Yeah, it's not even hanging on. And that's actually kind of the most beautiful part about it. But uh, you can kind of get away with that when you're like on super clean Stratocaster tone sort of thing. You can't get away from that as much when you're kind of creating these more dense textures of guitar chord. All stuff that Jesse Cannon doesn't want to think about as like a non-guitar engineering I, guy I, nowadays. You, you know, it's like literally I want to come in the room at the end to just say that works or that doesn't work and we need to rethink the whole thing. Yeah. How about what is pre-production? look like for you ideally it means like working with a band in a room for a while like on an LP, three to four days of stuff. Obviously, the more time that I have, the better to, you know, potentially tweak some aspects of the songs or at least see if they're open to tweaking some aspects of the songs. I usually nowadays don't go in being like, we're going to have to change this song for this, that, or the other reason if they feel a strong way about it because there's been plenty of times in my creative life where I felt strongly about changing something and then ultimately realizing that the person's initial idea may have been better. As a producer, totally. it's it's not so much that way. That's more so as like a collaborative 
collaborator in bands. But as a producer, you know, a pre-pro session will look like you playing the song through, realizing that this might need a bridge that's better than the bridge we have. Me sometimes writing the bridge, working that out, noticing that the kick pattern and the snare pattern is not really matching up well with the guitar, so kind of accommodating those two things a little better. Always telling the drummer to hit a little harder or be prepared to hit harder. And even if they're hitting hard enough, telling them to hit it harder so they're used to it when I'm tracking them, me being psyched, but telling them to hit harder. Depending on the kind of music, obviously. You know, I was having a conversation at the URM, so we were talking about every time we were talking about how we don't like a producer's work, uh, the guy was like, well, he's one of those guys who uh, tells the drummers to hit as soft as they can. I'm like, well, that's why I hate (laughs) Who does that? (laughs) When we're not a taping. (laughs) Okay, true, true. I'm not awesome at making super sampley records like I hear some records sometimes where it sounds like incredible and sounds like all the kicks and the snares and toms are like sample replaced or enhanced to the T and I have no hate on that and I think that sounds cool in my personal work every time I feel as though I've worked on a record and I didn't get exactly what I wanted and I try to push it in a direction with the use of heavy use of samples it always starts to sound awkward to me and I think it's just the fact that I'm I'm definitely a big editor I'm definitely a quick editor and I definitely see that as an integral part oftentimes of the process of making a record. Obviously, I'm not working on tape, so if I can fix some stuff up, I'm going to fix some stuff up. But I'm not the kind of guy that stuff ends up sounding like so extremely together. So like when I have a lot of samples working, it sometimes ends up sounding awkward to me and like detaching itself. I mean, I I'll almost I always have awkward is the right word though. Because yeah. like I think even like that's the still the problem with like computer program drums is there's just still something I'm like, it gives me a hesitance and awkward, I think. Awkward. Yeah, it's just, that's that's the right word. And it's like, it's a funny thing, because like as somebody who will rely on samples, like if I'm not getting the hits, like, you know, if the drummer is a 90 pound person who with no strength and yeah. bad technique, I'm going to go to the samples because it's going to get a better result than that. But like, whew. It's still just, it doesn't sound right. Right. And I mean, also, I've been working out of, you're an engineer in Brooklyn. You don't always have constant access to a huge live room. (laughs) And so I've gotten used to working in relatively dead rooms, and I like relatively not dead drum sounds. So like... I'm always kind of sticking a little bit of an ambient sample in, gating the piss out of something and then reamping it in a hallway or something like that, you know? You got to have real performances to get those sort of things to not be an awkward listen. And I try to be critical of myself and pretty much anything that I'm working on of like if there's ever that moment that crosses from like that is affecty and full of character to that's like somewhat awkward, like be aware of that. Because there's been plenty of times that I even listen to records that I'm happy with and I'm like, oh, I, I could have nailed that a little better that yes. element about it a little better. Now, if you're not doing that, you're not growing. Right, right. What happens when somebody says, nobody will hear that? I think that's probably something I will say more often than other people. Because, mm. like, sometimes people will get a little sensitive about something having some roughness around the edges, and they'll hear it as something that's maybe rougher than I think it is. And maybe I'll say no one will hear it that way. I genuinely feel as though I don't get that from people often. Because if if something is, this is where I lean closer to the John Feld thing. If something's like really not working for me, I'm not letting it stay. And if they're insistent about it, then it'll stay. I'll put up a small fence for them to have to climb over to say like, I really want it to be that way. Like I've worked with a couple artists that kind of have a little bit of a 25% even looser pavement vibe. And there's been plenty of times that I've been like, I, you really got to tighten this up. And they really don't want to tighten it up because that's like the thing. And in retrospect, most of those things I wish I had tightened up. You know, that's kind of the nature of the game here. If I'm not working on someone's record for four weeks and there's not like a budget for that and they're trying to like whip out 
about an EP in three days. I'm not going to spend six hours of one of those days like changing the entire way they approach vocals if we didn't have any pre-pro on it. I'll just try to make the best thing that I can with them. I like that. What happens when you and a band disagree about something since you're kind of getting into that? I feel like oftentimes those disagreements will result... Those kind of disagreements will ultimately result in cool compromise. Or someone will take a break and realize that one of the other person's idea was better, you know? So, like, sometimes it's a matter of we should really nix this counter-melodic guitar part or vocal part that's happening at the exact same time as the lead vocal because it's confusing stuff. And either... People still care about that. Yeah, and, and either... <laughs> that's my problem with guitar music today is that everybody's like, oh, let the guitarist just solo as if there's no vocal. Here. Right. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I mean, going a little off topic, I am a lifelong devotee of dual guitar music. Uh I've loved it forever. Mm -hmm. All kinds of different guitar on the left, different guitar on the right channel music has been my thing between like cleaner, math, rocky, whatever, punk stuff where it's always kind of harmonizing or, you know, kind of the earlier productions where it's not as though we were going to do eight channels of guitar because we didn't have eight channels of tape just for guitar, yada, yada. So I've always been into that. But as I've been getting older, I legitimately feel as though I'm kind of toning down the amount of constant harmony for greater effect. You know, Mm -hmm. you'll get a little bit more out of it. Going back to what you were saying about what happens, I'm prepared to to let them do it how they want to do it if they are really hesitant to something I suggest. But hopefully between me and the band, we've developed enough of a trust in each other that we're ready for it, ready for whatever the outcome is. You know what I mean? Ready to let it live. Because I can think of plenty of moments on records that, you know, maybe the band was resistant to changing and then a week later they'll be like you know what you were right we really got to change it and we'll be way better off together than if I you know if there was a disagreement where people got personal because it'll eventually work out for the better but just as long as people are able to accept results I'm usually able to accept results too it's like if this is working enough maybe this is the better idea you know that's where I'll lean a little bit more Steve like this is your art if you're feeling strongly about this that's how it's gonna fly I was recording this jazz band the other day this like kind of Latin Gogol Berdello style sounding jazz ska band and there's a couple there's one of the songs kind of has a ska that's yeah. a, I've never heard both those words exclusively never, you know never what I'm saying. each other it's like one of the songs kind of has a Rage Against the Machine vibe it was one of the most easy percussion overdub sessions of my life for music like this I think there was one take per channel of percussion stuff did like a kind of a shaker channel of stuff, a bongos channel of stuff, and a timbales channel of stuff. All full takes through. Plenty of moments in there. I was like, that's a little loosey-goosey. Everyone's in the room together. I feel everyone's legitimate energy of being like, whoa, this has the wave to it. This is what we yeah. wanted to do. I'm prepared to accept that. That's what y'all are going for. You nice. know? All right. Let's get into how you feel about some modern production things. All right. Yeah. Amp simulators and reamping. Is that involved in your productions? Reamping almost never. Amp sims with some frequency. I heard Kurt Ballou, I forget what podcast he said this on or interview he said this on, but he feels like reamping is flying blind a little bit, like planning on reamping is flying blind. And I totally agree with that in practice for sure, especially since I can think of a couple records I did where because the nature of people's schedules, because the nature of being a band in Brooklyn, if I'm working with a Brooklyn band and not like a a more serious band that's coming in for a lockout, they're not going to partition their schedule to allow them to be in the studio for five days in a row to record all of the guitars for a full length record where five days is almost like not enough 
enough time, even if you're cruising, to do every single guitar you're going to do. And tracking over the course of X amount of weeks with an easy recallability, because it's just like I had to recall an EQ, a compressor, EQ pedal, tube screamer pedal, doing all of the guitars on 11 free on Pro Tools, reamping them a few times, never being psyched because every other tone that I built around this record, vocal tone, like the mid-range of the vocal, the top end of the vocal, the mid-range and low end of the bass was all based around how 11 free was sounding. It was just never going to work. And like, I'm super stoked with how those guitar tones came out, stayed at 11 free. Same thing with like, generally, if I'm doing a record and I'm doing all these very sophisticated is the complete wrong word because I don't think anything I do is necessarily (laughs) sophisticated, but nuanced and textured and extremely broad and brash guitar tones. Sometimes the only thing that's going to fit on top of that is not like another crazy guitar tone, but something that you can still kind of hear the DI 500 hertz region in. And that's, I feel like every amp sim ever, like you can still kind of hear the DI behind it and they don't sound the same. And that's the only stuff that's going to fit, you know, or sometimes pedals without an amp. Like there's like a weird layer. If I, have so, this, yeah. if I have so many, like again, with the, with a lot of tones I do, sometimes I'll like split off the DI after the pedals, put it through a sans amp or put it through a head in a load box and no cap. Because I think that there's something about that. That sound that sounds like nothing like a real amp texture wise that can just kind of like fit as part of that fabric. So reamping, I'll do more often for effect on like vocals or drums. Not so much on guitar. Never on guitar. Nice. Well, yeah, I, I, we're, we're, we're in the same camp, but that's rarely happens when I'm uh, asking this question. People like reamping. Sam has a cool way of doing it. And Sam, Sam, has, Sam has control over his options and is experienced enough to get the result he wants. And uh, I think that's the thing is like I've never gotten practiced enough in going, OK, I don't have an amp tone. And this is how a record turns out good without having an amp tone. Because for me, I mean, I don't even take the DI. I'm right, literally I, about I to start taking DI DIs. Next week, I'm going to buy the radial thing to split it in more than one way Uh, and we're going to finally start taking DIs so that we can do things dude you can already split it more than one way I see one tuner pedal over here you probably got another tuner pedal another band brings in the tuners that that tuner pedal sounds like shit I for almost every record I do split it off from tuners and sans amps Really? I do. And I, I think that's also maybe part of like some of the funny aspects of the guitar tones that I've gotten that I love is that I actually don't have like a dope box for splitting them. That being said, I, yeah. I constantly gear slut after the radio box because yeah, in practice so that thing is awesome. Being able to also flip the phase in front of the amp is awesome because plenty of pedals flip the phase or rotate the phase in a funny way, you know, that having that radio box is, is totally awesome. Yeah. Now that radio makes one that's $200 to $600, it's just also like... Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Also, I'll, with the multi multiple amp thing, oftentimes I'll use different distortion pedals in front of the different amps. So I'll Ah. I'll kind of have to like do something a little bit funny, you know, but I'm happy with my results. Sure. Most of the time. (laughs) So it's like, there's funnier ways to do it. So how about sample dash MIDI drums? I am not a huge fan of mixing something that is all MIDI drums. I just did a, I just mixed a record for a band that had that. And I like how it came out, but it was like difficult to get it to that point because there was fake symbols are like very difficult. Fake symbols don't sound right. Again, like I'll always stick a kick ambient and a snare ambient sample. Sometimes like an also a kick and snare sample. Sometimes depending on the drummer's tom work or like how low they insist on having the ride symbol, I'll stick samples of like the actual tom that they played on top of 
toms that are just way too washed out with cymbal stuff. Also, the top and bottom mic thing on tom works to alleviate that a little bit. Yeah, kick and snare. I'm I'm all cool with samples, and oftentimes I'll put in little bits of funny samples, like kind of Tom Lord out style to enhance some points. So like putting in, you know, a super cavernous floor tom through a humongous hall reverb on the one of a section that almost takes the place of like sort of what a bass drop does. Yes. You know, just having a big like boom and breath that I, happens. I heard somebody call that the reverb shot was like the 808 drop of the 90s. Yeah, yeah, totally. I love that personally. Yeah. I'm also a huge automator, so I'll, I can just like automate the kick drum into, into a hall reverb, like just whatever standard hall that I can find, high pass it a little bit and just like get a big long boom at the top of some parts, you know, just to just, just give more of that impression that that person is almost like standing on top of their kick drum when they hit that one of the chorus or something, you know. Standing on top of the kick drum. Like <laughs> you that. know. How about a uh, pitch correction? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm into it. <laughs> no problem. Do you master your own records? I hate doing that. I do occasionally, but I hate doing it. I don't think I'm a very good mastering engineer. I ma- <laughs> And I hope no clients of mine that I just master for are listening to that, <laughs> but I don't think that they, by how much I'm charging them, they're expecting that I think I'm the most amazing mastering engineer. I will do it though. Mm-hmm. I will do it though. People whose masters I've really liked have been people like Jesse Cannon, <laughs> Mike Kalasian. Uh Jason Livermore has been mastering for me a lot lately. They just built an amazing new mastering suite at the at the Blasting Room, which is amazing. Yeah, it looks awesome. And it is awesome. I was just there back in September mixing a track and just just walking in that room. You know when you walk yeah, into... Uh, if you walk into a great room, it feels... Yeah, you walk into a spark. mastering room and you're having a conversation and it's like a really well-tuned room and all of a sudden, like your brain just like kind of flicks. You're like, what? Where am I? Like I can't really hear my voice the same way, yeah, but also I can hear everything about it, you know? Alan Douches' surround room is like one of the most interesting sounding rooms and it's like your voice as somebody who really hates the sound of my own voice I almost like it because I just want to listen to how much different it sounds right this room sounds kind of cool I'm I'm psyched you know it was really crazy when we put the pine up in the live room it was just sheetrock you'd hear the top like nasally part of the voice mm-hmm. but then all of our voices got girthier once oh, the pine I love was that. up it was so crazy to hear the difference of like literally like when we just brought the pine in right not even like getting it up yet right how much it changed it how about three of your favorite guitar amps three of my favorite guitar amps i'm going to get like really specific i love my personal fender vibro champ it's a okay. 6 watt amp with an eight inch speaker. Uh, I think I use it on every single record I do. There's something about the low end that's just like a balloon. It's, It's huge. Either if it's like set conservatively or set to sound disgusting, it contributes something to guitar tone. The guitar player frontman of Such Gold slash the guitar player of Taking Meds, Ben Coton's Marshall JMP. It's a 79. It's the most amazing JMP I've ever heard. He accidentally bought it from Paul McCartney's current producer. So like he bought it on eBay from him and then told me I had to go pick something up at Avatar Studios. Like, he had no idea what that was. And I had a couple buddies that worked there, and I was like, hmm, I wonder who he's possibly buying this from. So I pick up this JMP from David Kahn. I play it for two seconds, not because there was going to be anything different about the purchasing. Like, Ben bought it from him on eBay. And obviously I was going to take that time to just like chat with him and pick his brain for two yes. seconds. Talk to him about, you know, what I'm up to. We end up talking about different languages of punk and hardcore. And he ends up kind of waxing for a little bit about how interesting it is that punk and hardcore bands where a lot of music is diatonic and like hangs around like pretty easily identifiable scale and modal structure. But oftentimes, especially in hardcore, there's like these complete sort of cockeyed new languages 
is about what chords can work next to each other, what kinds of intervals can work next to each other, and how interesting it is, is that in any kind of music there are, even if a lot of people don't necessarily see punk and hardcore as constantly boundary pushing, from some fundamental level, there is something that is like quite boundary pushing yes. about punk and hardcore. Love that. And yeah. he's the guy that would discuss that. Right, like, right. I've always heard the stories of how like as the person plays the chord, he just says the chord out loud. Oh, really? That's that awesome. Pre-production that he's like the whole time he says the chords that he thinks about it. That's an loud. ear. That's an ear. That's a level I'm never going to be at. Third favorite amp. I really love solid state bass amps. So, like, I have an acoustic 470 that sounds terrible, but it also also ends up being on most records I do. Sort of Mm. like that kind of solid-state grind, really, really, like, nasally throaty mid-range thing that on its own doesn't always sound amazing. Obviously, like, for the context of a lot of kinds of bands, that sort of gross, grimy, crusty tone really works. But I think oftentimes in the fabric of a bass tone, it can work. Because I do the same thing with bass that I do with guitar. I'll use a few amps at the same time. One Mm -hmm. maybe is a little more germane or, like sans ampy modern scoopy sounding bass tone with a lot of clack one is almost sounding like a fuzz pedal and then maybe one else is sounding a little bizarre usually like kind of on the dirtier end of things but as much note attack as i can get out of it maybe like kind of an underdriven thing that has a gaty fuzz happening you know nice so let's get out of that and kind of into who you are as a person yeah, your yeah. Taste. is there something you believe that everyone thinks you're crazy to think I wouldn't necessarily know if these people think I'm crazy to think <laughs> that <laughs> they're not telling but you. there's plenty of things that I probably believe that other people would say I'm crazy for thinking That's so what you I think that you can use a very very out of phase program material for to your advantage so like on this guitar stuff for instance oftentimes obviously if there's a microphone near a cone two inches away and then another one, the diaphragm is two and a half inches away. It sounds like ball sack. Does not sound good. Nothing sounds good about that. But oftentimes, making sure that everything is in pretty good phase among these different amps, which again, with different distortion pedals and different levels of drive, are are completely, to my ears, different phase relationships in the first place, not like a directly in and out of phase thing. Sometimes individual of these mics, I will EQ to piss to sound bad. Not necessarily because I want them to sound bad, but like as I'm listening to the monitor result of all eight of these signals working together, I'll EQ and flip stuff in and out until I get the texture that I want, and then I'll end up with this guitar tone where I can feel the notes the whole time, feel the bass definition the whole time, whatever. And if I were to like look at them on their own, they sometimes would not make conventional sense as to having had worked together. Same thing goes with like program material. Like I was just mixing a record where I molted the drums out to like a shitty Aphex compressor and then molted the drums out to a massive passive through distressors. The nature of those filter stages and the tube amplifier of that massive passive completely fucks the phase of the entire drum kit comparatively to a non- you know, tube filtered staged drum bus thing. And it's sort of, I've, I've heard Valentine talk about this as well with like Chandler tube drivers, but it'll sort of like turn the mids inside out or like puff them up. And sometimes you can use some of that as well as like the information outside of these extremely sharp filters on the massive passive to your benefit. And like, but when you're mixing at first, it's not as though you're going to have full control over what that's happening. But eventually for me, it'll like just click into a spot where, oh, I really like what's happening with these mids either sinking or pushing back up on certain pieces of material. Phase is so extremely important, especially in drum recording, more so than anything to me in drum recording, but oftentimes I like some 
kind of slightly weirdly phasing material, you know? Nothing to the point that you start hearing it like it's almost aliasing or sounds like it's on YouTube or something bizarre. You know what I'm saying? But like, <laughs> Don't want anything to sound like it's on YouTube. Yeah. So, so, like how Soothe can get if you like push push oh. Soothe up too much. Yeah. There's a funny thing. I think I was talking to Al about this. Of like, There's the three stages of a producer of you don't know what to do about phasing. Then you figure out phasing and your goal in life is to get nothing to ever be out of phase. And then you realize out of phase can sound cool and it gives character. Yeah, totally. And those are the three stages and then you are at the Jedi. Yeah, I'm at the Jedi phase <laughs> stage. When you, when you get to the, that third one. Well, I was I was witnessing someone, a next door neighbor at the space that I'm in right now was mixing an indie rock record and he recorded it, Kevin something. He did like some of the Titus Andronicus records and like maybe a real estate record, okay, Kevin yeah, something. I, I, I um, and his, Kevin mostly recorded it or at least set up like the scheme for the recording. And there are so many channels of drums like I usually end up recording like 20 to 24 channels of drums if I have wow. the ability to because I'll just stick random room mics places I'll stick a microphone on the beater of the kick drum if I can oh, near your crotch and not the heart of the drum kit like I'll put one everywhere that won't mean I will use everything mm-hmm. but like if I can have like one weird mic that sounds awesome for five seconds of one song that was worth it for me but this drum arrangement in the way that my buddy was mixing was like in kind of a multi-bus scenario for the drums like a few different things were smacking them in different ways and again a million drum channels and he got negative feedback from Kevin on the mixes and he was like really kind of shook up about it right I sat with him for maybe like 10 minutes and I was like flip that flip that flip that flip that flip that and then finally he found something that all of a sudden there was like the actual low end impact again Mm -hmm. and not necessarily thinking just in terms of like oh the snare is not working with the overheads which are not working with the close rooms which are not working with the far rooms it's like the more you EQ and the more you flip you can find some extremely interesting textures of transient and depth that you're not going to just necessarily, at least for me, figure out on the relationship of like, is this in or out? You know, there's just so many things and you need to like be aware of where everything is pushing and pulling, you know? Yeah, and I think there is a smart thing in that, that like you, when you record the drums, everything's at least in phase with each other in the sense of 180 to zero. Right, right. And then there's nothing contradicting to start. And then it's one thing if you add phase during the mix. Yeah, I almost never scooch microphone stuff around in a mix. Some people do. Like I know Kurt does that. That's what I was just thinking is I know that he's big on that. Tom Lord Alge does that, I know. For you know, I'll, I'll do a, a room mic backwards multiple mills. Oh yeah, that, that's that, that's that's a different do. story. But I I won't ever move anything earlier. That being said, if you have super high overheads, because super high overheads sound good. The transient of that snare drum and the transient overheads are, like, not correlated. So you're not going to – that phase is not absolute either. And, like, it's going to sound different in or out. And it's also the second you start adding tons of EQ because tons of EQ, in my opinion, sounds good, you know. And to most people, like, it's going to, again, be different in and out. Add, like, one high-pass filter to something, it's going to be different in and out, you know. So just finding something that more or less works and you retain – your impact, you know? Nice. So let's get a little less nerdy. We'll go to how long you like to take to work on a song on average. As like a mixer? Oh, like, you know, how long, if a band comes in and we're like, we're going to track a, a single. So depends on the kind of music. But if mm. you have two days, yeah. if you have two days, that would be great. One day is usually enough time, but you need two days for the tracking, a day for the mix or something. I know that's kind of like longer than like a lot of people like to do. And sometimes it will, you can get the whole thing done in a day. But I feel as though you need, if you're just doing a single, just doing a single and you want to explore arrangement and tone, you 
you need two days. If you're doing a single and you're like, I'm ready to accept the result, move quickly, and not like slap shod, but just go for it, yeah, you can get the tracking all done in a day. But I, I think for the most part, like at the very least, almost every part of the process takes an hour. You know, not setting up drums takes much longer. Setting up guitar tone can take a little bit longer. But for every performance of stuff, it usually takes at least like an hour. You know what I mean? To get what you need. And there's probably more than 10 tasks that you need to do. Get lucky the bass won't. Yeah, if you're really lucky. But again, I'm a bass player, so I'm yeah. hypersensitive to that kind of stuff. I mean, it's funny. Bass is what I rewrite the most consistently. And then, like, sometimes it's just like, oh, thank God. Yeah, this yeah. This person understands it, and I don't have to do any work. Right, right, totally. Are, do you play the bass at all? No, you just, have, you, just, you just end up having to be like, yo, I, this I, note I, is wrong. I, I literally, I sing the thing back very out of tune, and then I walk over sometimes. I hit the fret like this, like a da 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 da. I still think that that is still a trip to me about you. Actually, is that you're not a guitarist, bassist guy, but I know you from being adjacent to guitarist, bassist music. Somebody told me a really good thing that almost every producer really has one instrument they don't change a lot. Like there's somebody I learned that like I really like that. Like somebody's like, yeah, I did four records with him and he never changed a drum part the whole entire time. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's the thing of like there's just a lot of people who just like they don't like yes, they might change like something or might say I don't like that fill and have the mm-hmm. drummer play something mm-hmm. different. I don't really change the rhythm guitars ever. Really? I mean, I might say this chord is boring as fuck. You should voice it different. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't change that. I may say the strumming pattern's stupid. Let's think of something else. Now that you mention that, that is actually kind of an element that I hear about your records is that there there's an honesty about the guitar stuff that doesn't sound like it was meddled with. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, but it's funny because like Mike, who was engineering for me, he would do a lot of that stuff. But like, I like to go in and grade things. And if the guitar really feels bland and generic, it's like, well, let's just put more thought into it. But I'm going to let the guitarist come up with it. Right, right. I mean, I think that's a lot of the time the best result is when you inspire someone to do something that's more inspired. You know what I mean? You don't necessarily need to write it. For instance, on this past Drug Church record, mm-hmm. Patrick, the singer, is by no means an instrumentalist. We recorded three songs a couple of years ago, or like a year and a half ago, and then went into the studio to record seven more. By the time we were done with the seven and we had like kind of production references for those, he decided that one of the songs on the initial three was really not up to snuff and that we needed to record another one. We ended up recording another one. That other one ends up being like one of my favorite songs on the record. We end up retweaking all of the guitars to that one that he decided that he didn't like. It ends up being maybe like the second most popular song on that record. Uh, one of the songs that were on the new batch of seven didn't make it on the record. Mm-hmm. So like someone that didn't end up even having something specific to say tonally about the material inspired people to have the fire under their asses to be like, I guess we got to write another one. People weren't stoked about that, actually. The band, nor I, was necessarily like super stoked. I was stoked to work on another song, but it was like, God damn it, I wish we knew this previously. You know what I mean? But it ended up being the best decision for the record because it ended up coming up with a more cohesive and strong body of material, you know? That's what it's about. Yeah. Okay, let's get into some of your tastes. What's a perfect record someone else has made and what makes it perfect? I feel like in my own life, I shy away from thinking of things in kind of majoral platitudes, you know? Like, I don't think of much as perfect. There's plenty of stuff that when I listen to it every time, I'm like, wow, this is an inspiring listen. Sure. I, I, you know, it's funny, I ask everybody this, and this is one of those questions, like, I could never, there's nothing perfect. Right, right, <laughs> there's nothing perfect. Stuff that I, like, 
really love right now is that I think sound extremely inspiring and incredible is I think Shiner's The Egg sounds oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We've talked about We've that. talked we about both, Shiner's we, we The Egg. We both love this record. And it also, you know, Jason Livermore, my favorite engineer of all time, yeah. and Jay yeah. Robbins, one of my other favorite engineers of all time, yeah. worked on that record in some capacities together, and I think that's just the coolest thing of all time. I got to sit and run the tape machine for the master of that record. That is so great. cool. Was, that is so and cool. And I just drool the whole way down. Oh, it sounds beautiful. There's something that's so easy to listen to about the lower mid-range that is at once, like, very big and like pops out of the speakers but is never like too dense am it's I, like am I right too that, it's, that, that was at Pachyderm it was at Matt Talbot's studio I think oh, okay. yeah Matt Talbot of I Hung. think the other Shiner records at Pachyderm yeah my friend was in that band, but not on the egg. I think. Oh, he was in Shiner. Was he in the Life of Times as well? That's X Shiner, right? Or some? You who, are right. No, yeah, that's definitely X Shiner. But yeah. Other inspiring listens lately. That new story so far record, I yeah, think, sounds yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I was listening to it this morning. Yeah, I think that there's something about that record that sounds a lot different than Sam's previous work. It sounds a lot different than that band's previous work, but has like the marking of like a very thoughtful, thorough, uniquely done production that even whatever tribulation they had to go through to get to that end product, like it reeks in there. Like, yeah. and that's awesome in a record. Shows, yeah. that's, an, that's an awesome listen. As a big guitar music fan, I love everything Rob Crow has ever done of Pinback. Mm, yeah. He's like one of my favorite artists of all time. And he has this one record that I think is extremely under-listened to called Other Men is the name of the band. It's essentially a small retooling of the heavy vegetable thingy lineup okay. of stuff. So he plays bass and sings. The guy that's playing bass plays guitar and, and he pretty much is just kind of playing like one notey stuff the whole time and they both are. And it's, it. I think, I think Mark Trombino engineered it as like, because I think he also did the heavy vegetable and thingy stuff. And he there's did, something yeah. that sounds so incredible about that record to me. It's like a very euphonic and beautiful listen. And yeah, you know what? Lately, I, I used to spend a lot of time comparing my work and others' work to other people's stuff. Nowadays, no matter what, it's not as though I think everything sounds good, but I think that there's like an acceptable place for pretty much every single Sonic palette. The only place that's not acceptable to me is like that awkward listen of they tried too hard to get this to sound <laughs> You know what I mean? Mm. And I can say that of some of my own old work is like, it just sounds too much like I'm a mixer now or I'm a recording engineer now and it ends up just sounding bad. But I think that there's a place for stuff that is extremely bass light, stuff that's extremely powerful sample replacey. Like I think everything sounds good nowadays, <laughs> you know, I, except for my own shit. Like I am always trying yes, to like well, build that, that the thing, you yeah. know, except for my own shit and except where I'm in that mood where I'm like, oh, I can do that better than that dude, you know? But for the most part, I'm been extremely open to lots of different sounding records, you know, and engaged in lots of different sounding records. I feel that way except for in heavy music. I can't do this this amp sim program drums thing. I can't do. It. Right. No, I'm I'm with that. I'm with that too. But sometimes I will hear some stuff from that ilk and I'll be like, this is thoughtful. This is going somewhere with something or whatever. Jesse's not <laughs> no, he's just not no. feeling it. I think I say I also master so much of it that I'm just like, oh God. Yeah, what yeah, yeah. What are we doing? Well, again, I think stuff that doesn't sound like an inspired, artful endeavor. That's what it is, is it's painting by numbers. Too right. And I'm not into that either. No, you, you definitely are going for unique tones. Yeah. As an artist or whatever, you see a lot of what like the lowest common denominator 
taste is for people. I always think it's interesting when a band releases something that takes some subset of the scene by storm, how so many bands start to sound like that. Obviously, that is so lame. It's so cool that a peer of yours or a friend of yours or something in the canon of rock music can make such a humongous impact that people want to mimic you, then the Newton's equal and opposite reaction is when you're inundated by shit that is a bastardization of what that attempt was in the first place is annoying. And it's annoying to hear that as an engineer. I'm lucky to not have to work on that much of that kind of material. And I think as a mastering engineer like you are, you end up getting a lot of that because as a producer guy, I'm not the guy that's attracting those clients. I probably am working in some small way to not necessarily attract those clients. I'm down to work with anyone. And there's lots of bands that when I heard their initial material, I was like, this is going to suck. And by the end of it, I'm like, this is pretty cool because they were willing to like deep dive into what makes them an artist, you know? Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. And like, I want people to try harder, but like, man, there's just this thing of like, everybody hears one record and then just does like that record. Like it's like whether it's the neck deep solo through the whole song thing of pop punk mm-hmm. on to just mm-hmm. that. The amount of times I've mastered the same song as bad apple by basement. It's just like <laughs> including bad apple by basement. I actually didn't have Sam did that song. I did the record before the amount of times I've mastered that song to a T like that. You're just like, Wow, that's that storming pattern. Cool. True, true. In my personal life, I think I'm kind of of two minds. Part of me is like the extremely, extremely deliberate taste, extremely I like what I like dude, and I'm hypercritical of other people's efforts that I don't necessarily find to be something that excites me. And then the other end of me is like, I really love working with all kinds of people that are all trying to grow and like make themselves a better artist or like put out music because there's no better feeling to me than making music with people and putting it out and and seeing the reaction to it, even if it's that even if that's negative. And I think part of the former mindset that I described is not always healthy for me as a producer mm. to hold all the time. I am very aware of what I think is good and very aware of what I like to bring to bands in the studio. But oftentimes, if I'm kind of coming from the place of the music fan that think they know best, when I start something, it just doesn't work out. So, like, I need to sort of be able to go between the two things where I could be as hypercritical as I want and also as ready to work from a place of stuff that I don't think is necessarily amazing to begin with, you know? I like that. Uh All right, give me two records, maybe three, that really shaped you along the way in your life. I think that Blue Screen Life by Pinback, because this was before I was like a bass player, and when I realized that like most of the stuff that you're hearing is bass, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Probably Dookie by Green Day, because that's that's when I thought guitar music was the coolest thing ever. Well, for me, that was the record where I was like, oh my God, you can hear the bass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, 100%. And the first punk record where I heard like distorted bass sound good and I went, that's what I want to do with my recording. Right. Also, when you you hear it like making such a significant difference to the the music, you know, I can, yeah, I can think like after that, I was like every one that I wanted to be in a band with, I was like, well, can you like do walk, walking <laughs> lines on the bass, <laughs> you know? As a 10, 11-year-old, your scope of what's possible as a player is not that expanded no. yet. I mean, I, you know, I always joke about is, like, uh, when people say, like, you know, like, 
talking about musical epiphanies, I was like, oh, you know, it took me 10 years to hear that every single hi-hat and ride hit on that record is a little bit earlier than the kick and snare. Right, right, right. (laughs) But that makes it aggressive and it makes it sound good. Well, dude, actually speaking of which, this morning I was kind of listening through a bunch of the Green Day discography. Okay. Like I went between Insomniac, their newest, newest record, and then Nimrod. And Nimrod actually in memory is, is more of an honest raw production than I remembered it to be. That record sounds really uninspired to me as I remember. Nimrod does? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely elements about that, but I, I was kind of just jumping between like what a record engineered 95 sounded like to 99 mm. sounded like to 2016. Totally. They are definitely like state-of-the-art punk recordings this yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's state-of-the-art sounding now. Although the master on the new one is like not great. Every time there's just drums, it's up, and then you could feel... When everything else comes in, like a pushing back and then just a slightly too long release when it goes back to a a less intense arrangement. I said it on a podcast at one point that the new Green Day record sounds like they handed it to an audio school student to master. Really? That was just like discovered little. No, it sounds like they just discovered the L2. Right, right. It's not that bad. It's not like the Ugh. it's not as though like the top end is hard to listen to or there's like Ugh. their mixes are good. I mean, again, this is kind of where I'm coming from it's earlier. Too, it's too inflated. It's to like me. part of part of me thinks everything sounds okay nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, part of me thinks I, everything I, sounds terrible I, I, and I'm, part of me thinks that everything sounds fine. I'm with you, but that record that that one's a hard one for me. Yeah, yeah. And the third record is so one more shout out to this dude that really mentored me mm-hmm. as a teenager who again rest in peace Eric Eisenberg he was in a band called Alora Dannon which kind of sounded like Mission of Burma kind of like weirder dual guitar shiner nice. shine, a more melodic shiner and like that stuff I worshipped when I was a little kid and he was also recording it Alan actually mastered it oh nice and, Alan, and that was one of the first times I sort of noticed that people's names would be repeat instances yes. on record covers I was like 12 years old 11 I, years I, old at I, the time I, I, somebody always says that yeah Alan's one of those people because it's just he's the most credited yeah. engineer yeah and I think I think after that I decided I just loved the process and everything involved in, in record making you know after after I heard that record even though I wasn't at the point that I thought that I was going to be an engineer for other people mm-hmm. between those three things I was like I, I, I have to be making music for my life you know and I feel like a lifer you know I've spent I've spent and toiled a lot of time between I haven't extremely supportive fiance Mm -hmm. who has known me through we met when I was mixing the first record that I had any any recognition for I was in like Mm. kind of an Aesop Rocky glitchy indie hip hop band in college called Time Crisis and we released a record that had like a feature on the LimeWire successor called Frostwire (laughs) so it was the main it was the main thing you saw whenever you opened the Frostwire client for a month Nice. and we ended up getting like a ton of listens and ended up playing a show with KRS-One and like doing some stuff that's like very outside of my realm right now but after I she was around when I got bit by the bug of like I this is I'm a glory seeking involvement seeking guy with making as much good music as I can with as many people as I can and so she's been extremely supportive through like that entire process I don't even know why I'm dropping her name or why I'm getting yeah, into that with it because right you love now. her but Come I do on. love her and I'm getting married next year which I'm yeah. psyched about so what's something outside the audio world that you're good at or interested in I'm a big skateboarder but yeah, that's, that's like right. that, yeah, I was shocked when you carried your skateboard <laughs> in here that kind of like figures into guitar music dumb though you yes. know what I mean they're related I yeah, mean it's the same thing as like yeah, I'm into punk and I'm into politics. When, when when Such Gold toured, yeah, exactly. When Such yeah. Gold Such Gold did a tour with Anti Flag one time, mm-hmm. and you know, obviously, I grew up skateboarding in Anti Flag my yeah. parents' garage. So like during every Ruby single both. every single sound check, we would be like skateboarding in the club while <laughs> they were playing. It was a good feeling. I got two cats. 
They're cool. <laughs> I got a dog. She's cool. I'd spend too much time in the studio to yeah. be interested in that many other things. But I like skateboarding. Uh, I used to be a big tennis player, actually. I've been dabbling lately. Oh, yeah? We should go play some tennis, bro. Yeah, there court, court, court's <laughs> over on uh, Morgan. Yeah, yeah. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? Probably with Bill, with Bill Stevenson. On the Such Gold LP that we did with them, there were some moments that were a little more aggressive vocally that we weren't being very deliberate about what we were doing pitch-wise. And he really hammered into us that like even if this is screamed and even if this is aggressive sounding we need to know what pitch area and vibe area we're trying to hit deliberately and mm. not just letting it go because I feel like I hear that oftentimes when I record yelly bands as well mm-hmm. is that they'll just kind of yell when in reality even if you're screaming and yelling it will sound better in a mix to me it'll sound better in an arrangement to me it will sound better emotionally to me if it's being very deliberate as to what pitch it's shooting at you know what I mean obviously it's a little different if it's like sounding music (laughs) or whatever but even then even then oftentimes when I'm working with aggressive vocals I will be very deliberate in when I'm producing them to go for a certain pitch area and I will also melodyne that stuff too Mm -hmm. if it's like this is not high enough or this is not low enough I'll push it down a step as long as it sounds natural you know really is so important and I think that's the thing is like where do unintentional people go in music it's like screaming and bass right 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 (laughs) it's like oh bass I'll just follow what those people are doing yeah 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 screaming it's like well I'll just make some fucking noise yeah I'll just go for it then I get attention which is really what I'm here for right right I can think of I can think of more than one person in life that especially like in some of the younger days when I was like really into like grind and death metal for a long time and so a lot of people that were into that stuff too they wouldn't even write lyrics they just go for it yeah (laughs) you know definitely been on the other end of a session of I'm gonna take some cough medicine and write some things down and (laughs) that's the vocal I've I've been there a couple times so the last thing is why don't you do a little self-promotion my name is John Markson I produce bands I record bands you can find me on the road with such gold and with taking meds email me at john.markson at gmail.com if you have any questions or want to make a record or what have you the new drug church record cheer from pure noise records just came out that i produced and engineered i'm really happy about how that came out i worked with a cool thrash hardcore band full of latin musicians from brooklyn called super deaf that just put out an ep which is pretty cool i just mixed a record for a winnipeg math rock genius called am overcast which you need to check out and my band taking meds is in the middle of the second lp right now and we have 14 songs that were that we're cutting up and trying to wear both hats effectively being the bass player and producer of a band fun i like doing that that, though that's that's like sort of where I thrive. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet: that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creators' website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 